Hello, Dan. Good morning, Dwayne. <laughs> it's good to be here. Are you ready to talk about the World Trade Organization? This is a topic that's of considerable interest to me, so let's uh, dive into it and see where it goes. Welcome to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's top priority is free trade, specifically the World Trade Organization. It was recorded on January 28, 2020. And once again, joining Top Priority is Dan Pearson. I'm a trade policy fellow at Americans for Prosperity. There's a there's a confusion about the World Trade Organization. And that confusion, uh, it, it opens a door to conspiracy theories, to ideas that we're somehow um, making the United States beholden to a, a globalist cabal. Um, and so I, I really wanted to take a dive into uh, the World Trade Organization, talk about its history. And I'm so glad that you're part of the team, that you you know so much about where this came from and what it is and why we have it. So if you don't mind, just let's just talk about the history of the World Trade Organization, and then we'll get to what it is, what it does today, and how we're involved with it. Okay. Well, to really understand the WTO and put it in context, you need to go back and consider what life was like before we had the WTO, before we had any coordinated effort among countries to try to uh, liberalized trade, okay? In fact, if you go way back, we have this issue from human evolution that, you know, we kind of have a protectionist instinct, all of us. And it comes because 200,000 years ago, all of our ancestors were running around in small groups of hunter-gatherers in Africa. And, you know, you had, you know, 80 or 100 people together in a group. And they learned to be very dependent on each other, self-sufficient as a group, and wary of outsiders. Because if they had to deal with outsiders, it's too easy for somebody to get hurt. Okay, uh, And so the gene pool that developed was a gene pool that was is based on um, figuring out how to do, do things ourselves and being a little wary of outsiders. And I know that some people might not be entirely comfortable with the concept of, of evolution. And in that case, just think of it as human nature. This is just how God made us. Okay, And I'm very comfortable with that also because it gets us to the same point. We are dealing with human nature that is fundamentally favoring protectionism. And we, we all have those instincts. You know, for instance... When you go to a football game, which side do you cheer for? The away team or the home team? You cheer for the home team. You bet. I cheer for the home team too. So even though I'm a, an avowed and committed free trader, I know for sure that I have protectionist tendencies. Mm -hmm. And so we all do. That's just the way we are. That's just how, uh, how human nature has, 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 has brought us. Uh, uh, and so the, 
part of the issue is human nature sometimes isn't very easy material to work with. And as we try to do trade policy, we're, we're working with all of those um, well, protectionist inclinations and, and trying to deal with them. So, uh, and if I could, this is kind of an aside, but you know, uh, the president has been very clear about his tendencies to operate on instinct. And I, I have a, a quote here from when he was in an interview with the Washington Post, November 28, 2018. And this was a comment that related more specifically to the Federal Reserve and how they were setting interest rates at the time. And But what he said was, they're making a mistake because I have a gut. And my gut tells me more sometimes than anyone's else, anybody's brain can ever tell me. Okay, So this is a problem when it comes to non-intuitive issues like the economics of trade, because the president's instincts are guiding him in the wrong direction in terms of the economics of what actually makes most sense for the country for, 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 from trade. Okay? Mm. So um, just, that's, just set that one aside, and we, we may come back to it later. But um, shifting back to the world before the WTO, the protectionist mindset led to a form of commerce that was called mercantilism. And this was dominant in Europe in the 16th to 18th centuries. And, and basically, uh, that was the philosophy was that a country should have more exports than imports. And all countries should have that. And of course, that's mathematically... It's, yeah, you can't, it's impossible. <laughs> yeah, right. um, if, if one country's got more exports, then another country has to have more imports. Right. Yeah. Um, but in order to try to achieve that outcome, countries applied high tariffs on manufactured goods, and especially so they could do the manufacturing in their home country. So what, what, what's the thinking there exactly in, in mercantilism? The, the idea that the more gold a country has, the stronger it is. Is that is that the thinking, or is it is it the the more robust their industrial base is, the stronger a country is? Well, the scorecard really was the how much gold and silver you had piled up at home, and you know they they, they measured they could measure it annually more or less based on the quality of their statistics at the time uh, in terms of imports versus exports, but but um, uh, they really wanted to acquire gold. And that was seen as the source of wealth. And if you were importing more than your ex you were exporting, gold supplies in the country would be decreasing. So that was that was the concern. So in 1776, we were having a, a revolution here, but over in over in England, Scotland, Adam Smith started pushing back against mercantilism. He was not at all happy with this policy. So he he uh, wrote his uh, famous work, The Wealth of Nations. A different kind of revolution was starting yeah, there. That's, that's right, yeah. Um, and he, in Wealth of Nations, sweep away the, all the wording, and you get down to three key points for our purposes now. That trade, when it's freely initiated, benefits both parties, not just the exporter. And that just hadn't really been understood very well under mercantilism, okay? The second point, Specialization in production allows for economies of scale, and that improves efficiency and promotes economic growth. Okay, and the the third point is that a collusive relationship 
between government and industry is harmful to the general population. And we, we see that still played out all the time in the United States and around the world. Uh, it, 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 we talk about the, sometimes that the U.S. economy is rigged in favor of certain people. You might say it's rigged in favor of steel producers in the United States because they have now special tariffs to protect them from imports. Um, and it discriminates against the steel users. And so we, we still have that, that same concept that, that Smith uh, enumerated. But at any rate, Smith also talked about the invisible hand of the marketplace. And if you let the invisible hand do its work and don't put the government in the way, every individual is able to do things that will raise his own standard of living. And by raising his own standard of living, there's more economic activity and everyone else's standard of living also can rise. You know, each person focuses on doing what he's good at and trades to... Uh, to obtain the rest. Mm -hmm. And we do that every, every, almost every American does that every day. Absolutely. We, we, we do our jobs so that we can go buy bread. We don't have to bake bread. Right. So when, when, when this is going on, 1776, one thing that we hear, and maybe this is another rabbit trail we could, we could say for another day, but in 1776, when we started the revolution, we eventually ended up with a, a constitution which allowed for tariffs. Um, how much free trade was there going on when the country started? Yeah. Well, free trade uh, in terms of no tariff is a relatively more recent phenomenon, mm -hmm. a relatively more recent objective. Keep in mind that until the beginnings of the 20th century, most countries used tariff revenues as their major source of government revenue. Certainly that was the case for the United States. It wasn't until 1913 when the 16th Amendment was ratified that the United States had clear legal authority to impose an income tax. Now, there had been a temporary one in the Civil War, and that was controversial and whatnot, but so the, in 1913, they, they made it official. It's okay to have an income tax. Then you didn't need the tariff revenues so badly, and so the the balance was shifting from tariffs to income. And from an economic standpoint, it's a lot easier to obtain tax revenue from an income tax in ways that are not uh, that don't depress the economy so much. Okay, um, it's not guaranteed that that will happen, but at least it's possible. If you're applying a tariff, as you know, you're, you're, you have a high tariff on one product, a low tariff on another, and you're getting distortions in the marketplace because of that. Now, you could argue that, well, if you had just a uniform tariff of 5% on everything, then it wouldn't be distorting among products. And that's true. But it, what it would do, it would make you 5% less competitive than an, another country that doesn't have any tariffs. One thing I want to, I'm glad you brought up <clears throat> when specific dates occurred, because there's, there's this belief that, and I'm actually was pushing against it just, just this morning with, with a uh, friend of mine, that because tariffs are in the constitution, then the founding fathers were for protective tariffs. And that's just not the case. There was a time in the country, the first part of our country, say from, so, you know, 1787 to about 17 or 1860, when tariffs existed just for revenue. That was the main focus mm -hmm. of them was funding the federal government. Then around 1860, um, we started seeing tariffs being put in place for restrictive reasons to keep 
industries out to protect industries in the United States. And then we had an era of restriction. And today, the tariffs we see uh, up until recently have been more for reciprocity. We'll put this in place until you change yours. And now we're seeing that along with uh, some more restrictive natures of tariffs. But it, <clears throat> there was a time when it was simply seen as a way to for revenue. And and if you go back, and a lot of this I learned in Clashing Over Commerce with Doug Irwin's book. You go back and you see a lot of the debate over the fact that they were collecting too much money through tariffs and they needed to lower them because there's just so much revenue coming in. And I wish we had that problem today. You know, <laughs> we, we instead we're looking at 23 trillion in debt and unfunded liabilities. But uh, again, I digress. I just I think it's important to understand that we didn't start the country with the idea of, of tariffs being a protective tool. Uh, that is largely correct. There have been some tariffs on some products that were somewhat protective for a long time, sugar being one of the mm -hmm. examples. Okay, But through the early days of the country and it, during the discussions on the Constitution, yes, you're right, import tariffs were allowed. But do you know what's not allowed? What's explicitly excluded in the Constitution? Tell me. Export tariffs. And that we can thank the cotton producers for because they were major exporters even at the end of the 18th century when the Constitution was being uh, written. They shipped a whole lot of cotton to England and they did not want their uh, fellow states getting together in Congress and saying, oh, we're going to put an export tariff on your cotton, because that, of course, would have lowered their revenues significantly and had major economic implications for them. So we can thank uh, the cotton industry for not having export tariffs. Keep in mind that some countries still use them. The Argentines have them on, on uh, agricultural products still, and uh, probably other countries as well. But it's, it is an another way for government to interfere in the economy. And so we can be fortunate that we don't have those. So let's get back to talking about the World Trade Organization. I kind of took us on a, on a rabbit trail there. But let's get back to the, to the history of, of uh, the WTO. Right, right, right. right. Okay, so we, we, had, we had discussed Adam Smith, okay? Mm -hmm. And so he kind of uh, laid the first building blocks. But then 40 years later, another Englishman, well... Smith is Scottish, Ricardo was English. David Ricardo, he comes along and he wrote his book, Principles of Political Economy and Taxation. And he, he you know, much of what Smith had written was relatively intuitive. It kind of made sense if you thought it through. The key point that Ricardo raises, comparative advantage, is not at all intuitive. It really isn't. Now, what it what it says is you shouldn't even try to be self-sufficient. Rather, your objective should be to do what you're relatively better at than others, which for, in many cases, it means do what you're best at, but not, not always, okay? Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, and so you, you focus on doing what you're relatively best at, and then you, you trade to get the other things. And if the whole world does that, we really have a much more robust and effective economy. So the, there are some implications from the work of Smith and Ricardo that are important to where the WTO is, 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 is trying to go. So one of them is that all resources are scarce and that it's important to let them be all put to their best and highest uses. And of course, you can't do that when you have trade barriers or other restrictions on where you can obtain inputs. 
Um, removing import barriers, and Hong Kong and Singapore have done this completely. Removing those barriers uh, improves the efficiency of resource use and raises economic welfare. I mean, those are two of the wealthiest countries in the world, and all they've got going for them are entrepreneurial people and harbors. Okay, so they're, they're, neither of them very big. They're, you know, small countries. Uh, the Chinese listeners to this would be reluctant for me to call Hong Kong a country, but it is a separate economic entity. And so, you know, that's all I'm trying to say is it's, it's sufficiently independent from China on economic basis that it has its own statistics and it has its own membership in the World Trade Organization. Okay. Um, but the, another implication of what Smith and Ricardo wrote is that imposing a trade barrier always makes the country that, that's putting it in place worse off. Okay. You can't impose a trade barrier on yourself and improve the economic welfare of your country. It just doesn't work. And we can give an example to make this a little more intuitive. In the United States now, we have these 25% import tariffs on steel. And so uh, that has had the effect, of, the effect of raising the price of all steel in the United States roughly 25% higher than world prices. It's also given us the highest steel prices in the world, which isn't a, which which might be fun for the mills, but not so much fun for the downstream users who have to compete against imported stuff. Um, but so uh, the United States produces about eighty percent of the steel that it uses, and it imports the other twenty percent. So when you put in a twenty-five percent tariff, you raise the price of all steel, and and the U.S. producers get eighty percent of the benefit, but the users pay 100% of the cost. And so for the economy overall, 80% benefit, 100% cost, we just lost. Yeah, and when you think about it, there, there when, you, when you look at the statistics, for every one person working in steel production, there are at least 60 working in steel consumption. Or c consumption. So you're, you're hurting that downstream. And then you start looking further. I, I keep thinking of Hazlitt's. You've got to look at all areas over a long period mm -hmm. of time. You start seeing... Of course, since the price of steel is going up, you see more people saying, hey, let's make more steel. So steel starts getting out there, out there, out there. When you have an increase in supply and you see a decrease in demand because it's so high, now you start getting a surplus of steel. The cost of steel starts going down. Now you see mills closing because they can't be competitive. And it, once again, it goes to all these distortions that entering into the market causes that I, I, people don't even think about. You have to look past step one as yeah. Thomas Sowell would say. And in, in recent months, what we've seen is, is uh, as you indicated, it, there have been more steel production coming online in the United States. Not surprisingly, because the price is so very high, relatively speaking, that um, there was a, has been a decrease in demand. Mm -hmm. And so the steel market in the United States is in kind of a world of hurt and it's still higher priced than the rest of the world. So yeah, it's, it's really easy for governments to jump into markets and their actions then have unintended consequences. Planning an economy is hard. <laughs> and that's one of the things that these, these trees yeah. help, us, help us do is keep from mucking around in that for the most part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at any rate, uh, we're back to Smith and Ricardo. How do we apply this knowledge? Because okay, because they've come up with new knowledge in a world that had never really understood this before, and and uh, the first way that it was applied aggressively was in the United Kingdom in repeal of the Corn Laws. 
uh, which a guy named Richard Cobden devoted a whole lot of his career to and fought uh, valiantly. He ended up being a member of Parliament, made arguments in Parliament. But but they actually repealed the Corn Laws in 1849. And I could explain that the Corn Laws were import tariffs against all grains. And they had the effect of supporting the landowners in the United Kingdom and raising the price of bread. And so it was a really regressive income transfer device, okay? And and there are some great arguments that were made because of that. And, and eventually, Parliament got so embarrassed because the arguments were correct that they did allow them to be repealed. So um, the in the United States, as you had indicated earlier, we, we got in the latter half of the 18th century, the Republicans, you know, they, they wanted high tariffs to protect the industry. And the Democrats largely wanted low tariffs because the uh, workers benefited more when they could, um, you know, buy buy what they needed at reasonable prices and not pay these really high prices. So <clears throat> the re- Republicans are, are are cruising along, uh, controlling uh, the government for many of those years, and uh, we get into th- the 20th century and then up to to 1930, and you have a desire. You, you had in the 1920s, agriculture was strong. In the Roaring Twenties, the farmers made a lot of money. You get into the into the uh, latter Twenties, and that starts to weaken, and uh, prices are in decline. Uh, and some members of Congress decided, well, we should have import tariffs on that agricultural stuff and and uh, keep it out, and then our farmers would do better. It was wrong on the merits. It was wrong on the merits then. It's still wrong today because we were a major agricultural exporter even in those years. And so very difficult if you're an exporter to benefit your your producers by keeping out imports. Okay, Um, So uh, we had Senator Reed Smoot from Utah, who was the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, and uh, Willis Hawley from Oregon, who was the chairman of Ways and Means in the House, okay, both Republicans. And they put together this Smoot-Hawley tariff. They got a lot of help from their uh, members. Uh, but it was a feeding frenzy, and the people kept, you know, they would say, well, I'll support your high tariffs if you'll support an increase in tariff on, on my product. And we ended up with tariffs being set at the highest level in over 100 years, you know. Seeing what the train wreck that was coming, more than a thousand economists got together and signed a letter to President Hoover asking him, please don't sign this. It's going to be a disaster. Well, he signed it anyway. So what happened? Other countries retaliated uh, and world trade shrank by two thirds between 1929 and 1934. And this did a whole lot to deepen and lengthen the Great Recession. It's not fair to say it caused it because the crash, stock market crash came in October 29 and, and the Smoot Hawley didn't enter into effect until next summer. And you'll, you'll see some people, I just read an article by Pat Buchanan because, like I said, I, I'm a weirdo and I read these things. But he, he was arguing that it wasn't the Smoot Hawley tariff that caused the, uh, the Great Depression. It was the Federal Reserve. And I looked at that and I thought, how many people are out there saying that the Smoot Hawley tariff actually caused it? I don't. I mean, I've seen people say that it exacerbated it. It made mm-hmm. it worse. But yeah. the Great Depression was ongoing when they passed this. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it, was, it made it worse. It mm-hmm. didn't cause it. Mm-hmm. But just an interesting side note. In the 1932 election, Smoot, Hawley, 
and Hoover all lost. So uh, torpedoing the global economy through a high tariffs proved not to be an effective electoral <laughs> strategy either. The, the question then posed itself to the Roosevelt administration. How do we dig out of this mess? Okay. And uh, with FDR, with the active involvement of his secretary of state, Cordell Hall, um, they uh, proposed what, what came to be called the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act of 1934. And what it did was that Congress granted to the president the authority to make some limited tariff reductions as long as other countries would agree to do it as well. And so these were country-to-country -country negotiations. It wasn't in a group. It was one at a time. But there were some useful tariff reductions that happened because of the um, uh, Reciprocal Tariffs Agreement Act. Okay, so now you're getting, you're on the cusp of World War II. You've got, the war has started in Europe. It has not yet drawn the United States in. Churchill and Roosevelt agree to meet on battleships in, off, uh, in Newfoundland, okay? Uh, Churchill actually has a dicey five-day trip to get there because of the U-boats, okay? But they, they, they did it, so, and FDR had a much easier run. But they, they, so they, they are together in Newfoundland, and they sign what is called the Atlantic Charter, which is looking forward, okay, this is going to be really nasty, but what would we like the world to look like in the future? And one of the key points of the Atlantic Charter was that they identified that they wanted trade on equal terms for winners and losers of the war. For all, you know, this because they had there had been a problem after the first war that the the Versailles Treaty was so discriminatory against the Germans, and that led to some of the resentments that got us to World War II. So. So Churchill and Roosevelt saying, uh, we get another shot, shot at this. We want to use trade as a weapon for peace, not a weapon for war. Okay, we want to encourage countries, winners and losers to work together. So that's an important pre-GATT, a pre-General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade thing. The Atlantic Charter made it explicit where, we, where those leaders wanted the world to go. And it goes back to what Bastiat used said before, when, when goods don't cross borders, troops will. That's, that's right. But it, at any rate, I, that's probably more background than you really wanted, but I, 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 I thought it was useful to make the point that there were a number of things that laid the groundwork for the post-World War II trade liberalization. Okay, so now uh, it's 1947. Uh, there, there was the Bretton Woods uh, meeting in 1944. Countries agreed to do a number of things, including to work on trade. So in 1947, uh, 23 countries get together and organize the, uh, what came to be called the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. They had tried to create an international trade organization. The United States Congress was not willing to do that. And so the underlying text, the general agreement, was the organization, if you will, for uh, several decades. It was a fairly effective agreement, uh, even though legally hard to describe. Um, the general agreement on tariffs and trade. Trade, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Also known as the GATT. Yes, the GATT. 
as is how it's usually referred to. So the stated objective of the GATT was to bring about a substantial reduction of tariffs and other trade barriers and the elimination of preferences on a reciprocal and mutually advantageous basis. Not a bad objective. Sounds I mean, good to me. <laughs> yeah. uh, but a, a, a clearly related hope of the founders was that uh, strengthening economic ties among countries would uh, serve to foster peace. So, so uh, it's worth noting that United States support for trade liberalization since World War II has largely been bipartisan. I mean, I, it may not be at the moment, okay, but but. Um, there have been eight successful rounds of GATT negotiations, and let's walk through these just for funsies. Uh, President Truman, a Democrat, oversaw the first three rounds, the Geneva and Anse and Torquay rounds. This was between 1947 and 1951. Okay. Then President Eisenhower concluded another Geneva round, second Geneva round uh, that ended in 1959, and they almost immediately began work on the Dillon round, which was completed by President Kennedy, a Democrat, in 1962. And uh, then they launched what came to be called the Kennedy Round, right after, the, not long after the president was assassinated. And, and that, that was finished by the Johnson administration in 1967. But then Fres President Ford came into the office and started the Tokyo round negotiation, which went ran from 1973 to 1979. So a Republican starting it gets finished by President Carter, <laughs> you know, the Democrat. I mean, they're just trading off back and forth. But they're all kind of working toward the same objective because they had this shared understanding of how bad it had been to not trade on reasonable terms and how what the consequences could be. Okay, so the most recent GATT negotiation, the eighth round was called the Uruguay Round, and it ran from 1986 to 1994. It took a long time. Uh, and in part, it took time because it dealt with issues other than just tariffs. It dealt with some internal policies of countries that are sensitive, including in the United States, for instance, our agricultural subsidies. And, and it's also a problem in Europe, okay? So the major countries had to agree to discipline their domestic activities in ways that would reduce or eliminate the distortion that those policies create for international trade. And we, we face that same challenge on any negotiation going forward. What are we going to do to discipline our internal policies? So we're not any longer just talking about tariffs and, and border members. So you ready to talk about the WTO? Absolutely. <laughs> We've been talking for 30 <laughs> minutes now. It's a, let's get to it. Okay. Well, the World Trade Organization has two major functions. One is negotiations, and the other is dispute settlement. So first, on the negotiation side. Well, well before we get to that, sure. how did it even come into existence? Is it the, 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 the Uruguay round, did it create it? Yeah. Is it? So the WTO is really just like GATT has has evolved. Right. GATT has become now a formal organization because Congress was not eager to approve the original international trade organization in the 1950s. Um, and so they ran just with the GATT because that's what they had. By the time of the Uruguay round, there was enough consensus that, no, no, let's have an actual organization here because we want, we want it to do some things that just a paper agreement is having a hard time doing. And so uh, it was uh, agreed to go ahead and create this formal organization. It's housed in the exact same building 
in Geneva that the gap was. And you know, it's in many respects it's the same, but it is it is a more more formal organization and much more it's much easier to understand and explain. Okay. okay. So now the World Trade Organization, it it uh, oversees the 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 GATT, the text of the agreements, okay. if you will. Okay. So it's got two functions. You right. Said. Right. Well, first let's talk about the negotiating function. You know, when when the World Trade Organization started, it had uh, 76 members in 1995, more than three times more than the the GATT had in 1947. Okay, so you have a lot more players to deal with, which makes life complicated. And now there are are 164 members. It's so the the GATT has become a kind of large and unwieldy group, and. This is a particular problem because the agreements all have been done on consensus. The multilateral agreements, it's every country agreeing not to object, okay, to every provision. All right. <laughs> so you can understand why this might get dicey. Now, um, the, in the late 1990s, there was, the hopes were high that we would have another major round of negotiations, and there was an effort in November of 1999 to create uh, or to, to start a new round of negotiations in Seattle. It was supposed to be called the Seattle Round. I was there for that week, and believe me, it was the, the longest month of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember that. I just remember the news stories about that. That was crazy there, right? It was. It, it really was crazy. Um, the local authorities were not adequately prepared. There were very focused demonstrators coming there with all kinds of agendas, many of which had almost nothing to do with international trade. And there was a tendency to blame everything in the world that they didn't like on, on trade. And so, they, you know... That that, agree, that that meeting was somewhat of a debacle. However, then uh, two years later, in December 2001, which is just shortly after the 9-11 attacks, the world came together and they started the Doha round of negotiations. But in retrospect, we can see they did it with an unrealistic mandate. There was an expectation on the part of developing countries that uh, they would have to give no, make make no more reforms themselves. Instead, the rest of the world would make reforms, and they would the developing countries would benefit from it. And in particular, they wanted more uh, agricultural reforms from Europe and the United States. And and it just turned out not to be a very co- constructive process, and it, it bogged down. Uh, before the end of the George W. Bush administration in 2008, and it's not going anywhere. But it's never formally been ended. You can go on the WTO website, Google Doha Round, and, and it'll come right up. They're still so, churning along doing absolutely nothing. No, they are. it's just sitting there. Okay. No, no one's putting effort into it, but it has not been taken. It has not been formally ended is what I'm trying to say. Okay. Okay. Um, so there's the negotiating function. Uh, have we covered everything there? Well, uh, I, I know I would have mentioned just a few more things. Sure. That to do a proper multilateral round, it does require everyone to agree. That's that's clear in the WTO um, rules. Okay, but there is provision for what are called plurilateral agreements, which are agreements among willing members, in which the Reluctant members don't have to participate. And and there have been some successes there at the WTO, and we may see more. Uh, we have um, 
uh, ongoing negotiation on e-commerce, an ongoing negotiation on trade and services. Um, the government procurement one, it exists, but they're trying to expand it. Uh, there is an agreement on information technology that was agreed, you know, from a, uh, that was done a few years ago. That may be also updated. And they're working on an agreement on environmental goods. So there are these kind of sectoral or special special purpose negotiations in, in which if the major members of the WTO decide to get together and do it, okay. And, and it, there's kind of been a threshold that you, you want 90% or more of global trade of a, of a product category to be included. And once you get that critical mass, then, okay, let's do it. We can, you know, if the others aren't involved, it doesn't matter so much. So, so there is there is some uh, room for negotiation, uh, effect, effective and meaningful negotiation in the WTO, even without total consensus. I live in hope that we will see another major multilateral round. I think it would be good for the world. It's not going to happen right now, but it, it I I would like to think that we would get uh, that we would be focused on the benefits of trade and how we all can be better off if we liberalize, how it's in our own self-interest and then in the interest of others. And so I would like to, to see that happen. I'm not holding my breath. We're, that would be a few years away. Okay, so but the, the second WTO function then is dispute settlement. I think this is the one that gives most people the most concern. And why is that? I, maybe I'm wrong, uh, but I don't think I am. I think there's a lot of concern that when there's a dispute that the United States is somehow surrendering its sovereignty to some shadowy group in Geneva that is going to come in and tell us how we need to do business. Well, from what I have observed from the current administration's trade policy, we don't seem to have surrendered any sovereignty at all to do whatever we want in trade. <laughs> okay, so, so the empirical evidence would, would argue against the point that you've made. Uh, but uh, having said that, the, the, the WTO has no army. It has no enforcement ability. It, it has only the uh, ability to authorize retaliation by other countries if a country is found to be violating it, one of its commitments and, and it uh, isn't willing to conform to that commitment. So the United States has a, a complaint against it. The WTO looks at the accusation, looks at the, the agreement, looks at what we're doing, and says, actually, the United States has violated this agreement, then what? What do they say after that? Do they do, do they command the United States to do something, or do they simply make a suggestion? No, it's, it's just a matter of, okay, the uh, United States is found in violation. Um, uh, please bring your policy into conformity with the agreement and there'll be some period of time for that and if you know a year to two years usually depending on on the country and the policy um, if the United States is simply not willing to change its policy then the WTO will authorize the country that brought the complaint to retaliate against the United States by withdrawing concessions of a roughly similar amount in other words Going back to the agreement that was violated, the United States agreed to do something that it didn't do. The other country agreed to do something that it did do. Well, okay, if you did a billion dollars, if the United States did a billion dollars of damage to that country, that country then would be authorized to impose tariffs or do take some policy measure that would 
be roughly equivalent to a billion dollars so that there would be a balance. Uh, now, it's so it's balanced, but both countries end up worse off. So it's it's not like a great balance. Right. Okay, right, right. And what I what I want to emphasize though it is it isn't the World Trade Organization ordering the United States to do anything. It's saying you violated this. Mm-hmm. Just bringing it to your attention that we we agree with them. This complaint is valid. You mm-hmm. should stop. You know, we suggest you stop doing that. No sanctions are levied against us. There's no no punishment other than to say, all right, well, they won't come into agreement. So, you know, you're free to do what you want to do. They're not ordering the other country to implement tariffs. They're saying, if you want to do that, you're not, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't have to if you don't want to. That's right. There's There's nothing mandatory about it. And quite often there are extended discussions between countries that had a disagreement as they try to work out what's a reasonable settlement. Um, and, you know, it's it's not like you're just dropping off a cliff the day after you lose the WTO case. You, you, you're expected to take some, to think about it carefully and try to come up with policy reform that would address the problem. One of the criticisms of the GATT, um, <laughs> I've read that a lot of people referred to it as the general agreement to talk and talk and talk and talk. <laughs> and so that we hear that I've heard that the WTO is really kind of an impotent organization. They don't have any authority and, and nothing really happens there. But I've also read that often when there is a, a decision, that countries come into line with that yeah. decision very often. What's What's the truth here? Yeah. Well, again, the talk and talk applies more to the negotiating process, okay? The dispute settlement process is quite a bit more effective. I mean, and it, it also doesn't take forever. It, 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 it's quite common for disputes to be resolved within one to two years, which I would note is faster than, than a normal action in federal district court in the United States, which tends to run three years. And I'm familiar with this from when I used to work more on, on uh, intellectual property violations, which are dealt with in federal district court. So, so uh, we ought not to criticize the WTO for being slow unless we look at our own processes uh, mm-hmm. here in the United States. Um, but uh, I'm sorry, what was the question? <laughs> is, is, the w, uh, is the World Trade Organization... Is it? It's effective in getting people to or countries to come into line. It isn't just some, yeah, useless is, organization. Well, it is reasonably effective. You know, the, the United States has has won roughly ninety percent of the cases that have been brought against it. There's some one hundred and twenty cases, something like that. Uh, and the other, on the other hand, it's also lost a significant percentage of the cases that have been brought against it. And the reason for that, I think, is that countries tend to be pretty sure they're, they're in the right before they go to the effort of bringing a, a, a dispute settlement case. You know, um, the United States is more likely to be right generally than wrong because we, we have tended to follow the rules through most of our, you know, through most of the last several decades. We, we you know, we do our best to follow the rules. Okay. Speaking of following the rules and the World Trade Organization, mm-hmm. I think it's a good time to talk about China. Okay. Who we are told, doesn't follow the rules. Yet at the same time, when uh, a decision has been made against China, 
more often than not, they've come into line. Right. The, and not to defend China. I mean, no, no. it's still an oppressive totalitarian regime, communist organization, you know, country. I'm not here to be a champion of China, mm-hmm. but just simply to point out, if we want to deal with China, the World Trade Organization has shown to be effective. Right. Uh, China has taken its WTO obligations reasonably seriously, and they have not wanted to deal with the public censure, the global censure of violating a commitment and doing nothing to address it. Uh, They sometimes have not addressed it as fully as the complaining party would have liked, et cetera, et cetera. But they have tried to do something to deal with the problem, and sometimes they've fixed it completely. You know, it's... uh, some scholars have thought they've been better at living up to their obligations in disputes than the United States has. And I'm not really able to weigh that because I, I think both countries have been reasonably good at, at meeting, you know, at fulfilling their obligations in, in dispute settlement. Um, the, the problem with China and the WTO has m- more to do with the unwillingness of countries, including the United States, to challenge China as quickly and as aggressively as they should have when they started to see China stray across the line, okay? Uh, And that criticism can apply to both the George W. Bush and the Obama administrations. Uh, It was fairly obvious that they were violating some of their agricultural commitments, for instance, and the, there was a hesitation. Oh, let's not bother them. They're, you know, they're buying a lot of soybeans from us. That we we have these other issues with them. We're trying to get them to work with us on North Korea. Let's not irritate them. In retrospect, I think that was a big mistake. I think we should have been much more upfront and just kind of created an expectation that we are going to, in a polite and respectful way, challenge you whenever we see you straying. Okay. Um, so now we're in a situation where there's this kind of backlog of. WTO potential violations that China has accrued, and it would be perfectly rational rational to to challenge them in a concerted effort together with our allies. The Europeans would share our interests, the Japanese, the Canadians, the the Aussies. There are countries that are absolutely going to see these issues our way, and so there are scholars who have written in some detail about how the United States could work with other countries to put together a mass WTO dispute settlement approach to uh, China uh, that would have the possibility of sorting out a bunch of these issues. Would, would, it would seem that that would be a more effective way of doing it than, than the Lone Ranger, we're going to take this out and do it ourselves. Well, uh, I think it I would expect it would be more effective. I mean, one of the problems with the Lone Ranger approach is that the United States pays the cost in terms of the tariffs that we have imposed on our uh, on ourselves for, for Chinese products, and the benefits go to countries. If if we ever get any benefits, they they're, they're likely to go to countries that didn't pay that price in the first place. Okay, mm-hmm. so uh, it, it's not exactly a great uh, strategy, in my view. So where's the WTO at right now? Well. How effective is it? I mean, vis-a-vis China? No, I mean just in general. Um, with the United States, we we don't seem to be engaging with it much right now. Yeah, um, there there is what we would consider a, a, a potentially problematic U.S. engagement with the WTO on the dispute settlement process. Dispute settlement contests 
consists of two steps. The first step is that, well, okay, a country makes the request for, you know, brings the dispute, there's time for consultations. If the cons consultations don't resolve it, then a dispute panel is formed, and it consists of three members, experts in the subject matter from different countries, and they take some uh, months to study the issue, and there's public hearing and whatnot, at, or the hearings may or may not be public, depending on the preference of the parties. But but at any rate, the parties get a chance to pitch their case. And um, and the, that panel re, uh, produces a finding. Or, you know, they, they will find a, a one or the other party in parties in fault, okay? Uh, the losing party can say, okay, that makes sense. I think I did something wrong and just go ahead and, and, and the and start to change their policy, or they can say, eh, I really think the panel missed a key point here. They, you, I think I should appeal this to the appellate body and see if the WTO appellate body would reach a different conclusion. Now, the appellate body consists of seven members from, again, different countries, and these are quite well-trained attorneys, uh, and they sit as judges, and they uh, review any you know, any appeal that's brought to them, they they uh, will reach a legal determination. They are supposed to deal only with legal issues and not go back and relitigate factual issues. That's supposed to be the panel's job. Okay. Um, the the appellate body has become controversial in the United States, and there's a a reason for it that is worth mentioning. Um, the United States view is that the appellate body should enforce only what is specifically agreed in the underlying GATT agreements, okay? That uh, if an issue is not mentioned and, it's an, and it comes up in a dispute, the appellate body should look at it and think, well, countries didn't agree, thus we take no position. Okay? In the European Union, there's a much different sense of jurisprudence. There, they have what's called the European Court of Justice. And they have 28 member countries, and the European Court of Justice deals with a whole lot of disputes that come up between countries as they try to, you know, perfect the single market. And uh, uh, and the European Court of Justice is expected to fill in the gaps. Okay, if something isn't specified and there's a problem here, okay, well, what's reasonable? Okay, so they make a decision, and that becomes established law. The appellate body has been acting a lot more like the European Court of Justice, filling in gray areas, coloring outside the lines, going where the underlying agreements did not go. That's been very troubling to the United States. Okay? And so since the summer of 2017, the United States has refused to allow new members to be appointed to the appellate body. And that led in December to the effective uh, sidelining of the appellate body when it dropped down to having only one member. It no longer had a quorum. It needs at least three members. The, the terms of two members ended on December 10, and boom, that, that ends the, the appellate body. So now, if, if a country loses at the panel level and decides to appeal, the appeal goes to an appellate body that's not functioning. And so, in essence, the, it goes into limbo and the dispute is never resolved. Thus, the country that 
was found in the wrong by the panel never has to correct its, its policies. Now, interestingly, this is the way the dispute settlement process worked under the GATT. It was one of the biggest complaints of the United States in why we wanted to get beyond the GATT and get to uh, create a World Trade Organization that had uh, um, enforceable dispute settlement in it. Because, you know, we follow the rules more than other countries, and so we're more likely to to benefit from the rules. And it's, So it, it's really incongruous that we find ourselves at this point as the country that has stop the appellate body from, from working. Now, there is a proposal to uh, reform the appellate body that Americans for Prosperity has been very much involved in. Uh, and it would it's, it's, it has three parts. One is to uh, adopt what are called the Walker Principles, which um, it, it's, a, it's a clarification of how the Double, uh, how the appellate body should address a variety of issues. Okay, but that <clears throat> that that was worked out by Ambassador David Walker from New Zealand, who was chairman of the WTO dispute settlement body. Okay, so that, that's done. But then w the, the proposal would go beyond the Walker principles in two ways. It, it would say that there should be created an enforcement and oversight committee to check up on the WTO, to so that if there were concerns by members about how the the how the appellate body had dealt with something, that could be taken to the oversight committee. And in other words, the appellate body is kind of a legalistic group. And by t giving it to an oversight committee, it would take it back to a more political determination. Okay, countries, we got a problem. How are we going to deal with this? Um, and then one other thing, the, th the third element, is that there would be rotation of members of the WTO appellate body secretariat, okay? Because currently, the appellate body members can serve not more than two four-year terms. There's no limit on how long the appellate body secretariat members can stay there. And so you've got attorneys who've been with the secretariat much longer than any of the appellate body members. And over the time, what we've seen is a shift of power, I think, from the, or shift of influence at any rate, from the appellate body members themselves to the their staff, the secretariat. And that's not healthy, okay? Um, and so the proposal is that there should be a rotation of secretariat staff uh, and that they should serve no longer than the than the eight years that the appellate body members serve. Okay, so a little more background than you wanted, but I, I wanted I wanted you to be aware that there is a, a what what I think is a very reasonable proposal to address the shortcomings of the appellate body. Americans for Prosperity and other organizations are encouraging the the Trump administration to take this plan and try to move it forward, so that the appellate body could be reestablished by the time of the next WTO ministerial this June in Kazakhstan. Is there anything else we absolutely should cover that we haven't? Oh, my. Um, I mean, we, we're at an hour now. Okay. Well, you can you can trim some then. Does the yeah. <laughs> um, I think we, we covered the bulk of it, though, don't you? We have covered the bulk of it. Uh, let me add this comment. If the World Trade Organization did not already exist, we would need to create it. It we need something along these lines to get countries in the same room and to get them to think about how much we have at stake in making the global economy work well. A corollary to that 
in the United States, I think we need a much stronger discussion about how trade actually affects the domestic economy, particularly how it affects employment in manufacturing, which I think is very widely misunderstood. Trade tends to get blamed for everything that's happening in, in manufacturing employment that's unfavorable. And just to review the numbers, manufacturing employment peaked in 1979 at 19.4 million factory workers, okay? It has declined somewhat gradually in fits and starts so that it's now at about 12.8 million. Why has that fallen? I mean, it, it started to decline very definitely prior to when the NAFTA was put in place, which was 15 years after employment had peaked. Um, the best study that I've seen on this was done at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, and they looked at the period 2000 to 2010 and asked the basic question, what factors led to the decline in manufacturing employment during this time? The answer was that, well, trade is one of the factors. It accounted for about 13% of the, of the decline in employment. The other 87%? It was the robots. It's automation. It is all of the things we have going on in the economy that are making it more efficient. And, you know, some people say, well, the, the manufacturing economy is getting hollowed out. It's really difficult to see that in the aggregate numbers. Uh, the value added in manufacturing in the United States is higher now than it's ever been in history. So we have fewer people making higher value things. We don't make so many t-shirts and running shoes in this country anymore. But boy, we're pretty good at Boeings. Most, most of the time we're good at Boeings, okay? Uh, uh, and we're, we are good at semiconductors and at automobiles and at the very many sophisticated industrial... High value. High value items, yes. So we do high value stuff here and we... we we tend to have fewer, more highly trained employees doing that. I think it's a normal evolution in the economy. It doesn't, I'm not concerned about it on its face, especially in the context of a, uh, an economy that keeps adding jobs. We are so fortunate to have had job growth every month for more than 10 years. And this is growth of like 150 to 200,000 or more jobs per month. We're now at over 158 million people employed in the United States, by far the highest level in history. Okay, it's never never been close. It's yeah, well, last month it was close, but you know what I'm saying. It's, mm -hmm. it's it's stepped up steadily, and this is a wonderful thing. It is an incredible um, form of adjustment assistance to anyone who might have to shift out of manufacturing into something else. And I know not everybody knows computer science, and it's, it, it can be very difficult to make the shift. But at least if anyone has to do it, they're doing it in the context of a growing economy. And that's really reassuring because there are opportunities somewhere. Thank you for listening to this installment of Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. If you have any questions regarding today's Top Priority, please email them to me at toppriority at afphq.org. We'd love to answer them in an episode of Frequently Asked, a short podcast 
where we answer the most frequently asked questions regarding our priority initiatives. And if there's an aspect of today's priority that you want us to discuss further, let us know that too. Until next time, I'm Dwayne Lester, and thanks again for listening.